Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview, recorded on October 19th, is with Randy Norton, the CEO of Multigreen, a newly established apartment developer, owner-operator, and capital provider with the audacious goal of building 40,000 units of attainable, sustainable, and tech-enabled new construction workforce housing apartments before the year 2030. Let me repeat what I just said, which will all come up in the conversation with Randy, but each of the words there were critical. First, they have the goal of producing 40,000 units in 10 years from essentially a standstill start. The housing will be attainable, which is another word for what many have called workforce housing, and which is also decidedly not subsidized, therefore capital A affordable housing. Sustainable. We know what sustainable means these days, so that one's a little bit easier than the others. And tech-enabled. We know what that means, but we think of that as a cost and maybe for something for fancy housing, not workforce housing. And the last word is new construction. Conventional wisdom says that workforce housing might best be attained by renovating existing housing, not building new. So that's their business. Audacious indeed. This conversation departs from most leading voices interviews, since here I'm speaking to a prospective, not an established leader. Multigreen is basically just getting off the ground, and they announced their business and the 40,000-unit goal loudly on the world stage at Davos this past January. The final piece of the pie is that Multigreen is coming out of the gate with the backing of 60 of the world's what Randy calls leading families, but whom we call uber high net worth families, families many of whose names I suspect we would all know. These families come to Multigreen through its partnership with IX Investments, an impact investment fund co-founded by Howard W. Buffett and Trevor Nielsen. Howard is the author of Social Value Investing, a book about private sector investing through partnerships in areas of social need, which then provides both an economic and an impact return to its investors. It's through these investing principles that these 60 ultra high net worth families have focused on the housing crisis and are investing with Multigreen. I found the conversation with Randy to be a fascinating exploration of planning out this business that will hopefully indeed deliver and operate even more than 40,000 units of new workforce housing. For more information, I suggest that you go to Randy's website, which is at www.multi.green, yes, .green, not .com. This is a continuation of our Leading Voices discussion on housing, which is a core part of our conversations, and will indeed be continued in our next episode, which is a post-election conversation with Priscilla Almodovar, who's the CEO of Enterprise Community Partners, one of the lead organizations nationally addressing affordable housing and communities. To explore these topics further, I invite you to visit either the Leading Voices website at leadingvoicespodcast.com or our feed on your podcast app where you can access past episodes in the housing series or other topics on Leading Voices. Thank you for listening into the conversation with Randy. If you're finding value from these conversations, please forward your favorite episode to a friend. Please subscribe and feel free to communicate with me directly at my day job at Terra Search Partners at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Hope you enjoy today's conversation with Randy Norton. Randy Norton, thank you for being on Leading Voices. I'm thrilled to have you today. Matt, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. One of the ongoing conversations on Leading Voices has been the topic of housing affordability. 
And that's a little distinct from affordable housing, but we all know that. And I'm thrilled to have you in the discussion today about what you're doing in multi-green. And it's different than all the other conversations we've had because the conversations around housing affordability are generally nonprofit housing people. We had Jane Graff from Mercy Housing. We had several for-profit fund managers in the space, Jonathan Rose, Bobby Turner, Daryl Carter. And then we've had a bunch of people in the conventional apartment business, Ron Tewilliger, Leonard Wood, Fred Tawami, who I know is on your advisory board, and Keith Oden from Camden, talking about conventional. But we haven't talked at all, but we've talked mostly to established companies, and you're going to be a company we haven't heard of before. But then also, you're talking about attainable housing, a word we haven't used before. You're also talking about all new construction, which is the most interesting part to me and patient money coming from high net worth families. And then the last comment is that you've started your business with a strategic articulated plan to build with some very heavy production targets, and you made announcement at Davos about what this business is all about. And I find that a fascinating way to get audaciously started. So maybe give the headline to who you are, what you're doing, what this is all about, and then we're gonna drill down throughout the conversation. Sure, Matt. Well, this goes back a long time. This is not a startup. We have been at it for uh, almost three decades as a single family office. I've been at the helm here with the alternative investments for the last seven years. And this is really a spin out of that single family office. By way of background, how we got here was about four years ago, we were in our Cardiff offices in sunny San Diego. Uh And we were preparing for a closing dinner and a sundowner with many high powered attorneys and consultants and only come to find out that this was not going to be a closing dinner at all. This was going to be a celebration of a permanent loss of capital because one of the transactions that I was overseeing was not gonna go forward and there was no way to recoup our pursuit costs. And I literally thought I was going to be fired. And I looked over to my boss and with a twinkle in his eye, he said, Randy, no dollar tomorrow is going to change the way that I live today. Let's go make a difference. Mm. And that was the genesis of our search for impact investments. And it was really an unbelievable act of good faith on his part and all of those professionals around me. And they were saying, Randy, this is the problem of the industry. This is not just you. And so our search began for impact. And we traveled the world to all the conferences. We went to all the universities, specifically I did. Mm -hmm. And one of the very first investments that we made was in a company called IX Investments. And they invited me to additional conferences and outings. And one of those was at the Stanford University Global Center for Projects. And while there, Bill Emick was giving a presentation on his newly published book with Howard Buffett, which was social value investing. And I just loved it because I'm all about value investing. And after Bill Emick's speech, I went up to him and I said, Bill, Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could leverage this platform of academia and all of these leading families of the world and go make a difference 
in specifically affordable housing. And that was the impetus to the next few meetings with IX. We collaborated. And really in the summer of 2019, we came to terms in creating what is now called multi-green properties. And it is very distinct. It is not a fund. It is a real estate operating company pursuing one transaction at a time and impacting one community at a time. So here we are, we're at the Stanford Center. We then you know, create a term sheet, we fund the entity, and our very first public announcement was on January 20th, 2020, at the World Economic Forum from Davos, Switzerland. And on the world stage, we declared that we were going to make and improve the state of the world by building 40,000 attainable, sustainable, and tech-enabled multifamily housing units. And that is how we got here today. That's what you're doing. So I want to drill down on all the things that you just said, because this is really interesting. Attainable, sustainable, and tech-enabled. But let's go back for a sec and maybe track your background to this thing and track the deal that you did where you lost your pursuit cost and, yes. and then how you didn't get fired. And then how you were at a single family office. So I have words that I have to translate for our listeners. And most people probably know what a single family office is, and I have to. But what does that mean? And I think there's a family behind it. Who was that family, if I can ask? And just sure. give a sense of perspective on that. Yeah, I am the trustee and I am the investment manager for all alternative investments at Green Mesa Capital. And that is the single family office of the McMillan family, specifically Joe McMillan. And with his generous support, I have been pursuing alternative investments on his behalf. That includes private credit, which is private debt, private equity transactions, venture backed transactions, prop tech, real tech. And the majority of that is real estate. LP, limited partnership investments. And that was what happened historically for the mm -hmm. last seven years. And about 24 to 36 months ago, we started becoming more involved in the GP allocations and decision-making as you know, we had more experience and resources than most of the people that we were investing in. And only with multi-green have we now gone out and contemplated even working with other families. And so when I say single family office, it's literally one family mm -hmm. whose assets I manage and oversee. And when you talk about losing pursuit costs, you know, my whole job as a manager is not to lose money. Right. I mean, rule number one is not to lose money. Mm -hmm. And rule number two is to remember rule number one. And that's what Warren Buffett, he disputes he at every chance he gets in publication or at the annual shareholder meeting. And so rule number one is you just don't lose money. And I did. This was the very first time that I had lost a very substantial amount of money. And not only was it lost, it was a permanent loss of capital. Sure. And that means to earn that back, I would have to go pursue additional risk and seek outsized returns in other investments uh, to get me back to ground zero, if you will. Uh -huh. And that's just not a very good way to you know, make investments. And when it comes to affordable housing or subsidized housing or any 
tax subsidized housing for taxes and financing, any of that stuff, mm-hmm. it is very complicated, very regulated, and uh, it's very easy to lose money if you don't have your stuff together. And we did not have our stuff together. And it was the first and only time I had lost money for the family. And was that deal that you pursued, it was a subsidized housing transaction? It was an 8% bond deal where, uh, I'm sorry, it was a 4% bond deal. It was not a full-blown Section 8 housing type project. We were just looking for an 80-20 type structure where there would be set aside you know, some of the units for lower income housing. Got it. And we were working with the Colorado uh, Housing Authority, uh-huh. and it was just a disaster. Really, I'll never do it again. <laughs> so back to the tail between your legs moment. At that time, you go back to him instead of fire you. He says, hey, let's do something long term and let's do something that makes a difference. So then you went out on his behalf and started looking at different types of impact investing and concept of impact investing, but still focused on real estate, which is that thing that you know how to do. Yeah, it was all in the alternative investment space. And the thing that I felt needed the most attention was either affordable or workforce housing. And really what we learned along the way was the thing that was needed most was that affordable housing and workforce housing space, depending on what demographic you were pursuing. And we wanted to do something that was basically workforce housing plus, you know, that was not concessionary with returns or concessionary with amenities per se. We wanted to standardize a way of living, a brand of living, and do it so frequently that these pursuit costs would be known, that we would have a system and operating a model We would have design guidelines, owner program requirements, so that we were just the smartest guys in the room when it came to constructing these kinds of assets. And by doing so, we felt that we could really service that demographic and that family that needed it most. And really, that was the concept of Attainable. Okay, so let's come back to Attainable and how you've done the business model. And let's go to the other track for a minute, because the other track was meeting Bill Emick and Howard Buffett and social value investing. And the words you used, you said combining academia. And I love this term because it sounds like a hotel chain that everyone's, every couple of years I get to go to, the leading families in the world. So what's the intersection between the leading families world, which means ultra high net worth families, academia, and then impact investing? Where does that come together? Yeah. When it comes to leading families of the world, this is beyond high net worth. (laughs) These are some of the wealthiest and most influential families of the world. And they just so happen to be shareholders of IX Investments. Green Mesa Capital is one of those 60 shareholders. And I would say that they are very savvy, experienced, intentional investors. And they want to know that not only are they getting a return on their money, but they're getting a return on their impact. And I think where the crossover with academia occurs is it requires a lot of qualitative and quantitative research to really measure impact investments. And so you're starting to see impact and other sustainable type ESG investments 
in all of the advanced universities in the world. And we want to tap into that knowledge and that resource for best practices and what we're trying to do here at Multigreen. Mm -hmm. And talk a little bit about how that, and we're going to talk about your business in a minute, but how the metrics around that concept work in real estate, how they work in terms of returns as compared to alternative returns they could get by playing with Blackstone, for example, and hold period, time duration of the investment, because I think that may be the one of the more important variables in this. Sure. Well, one of the grievances that I had while at Green Mesa was that our investments were always short in duration, mm-hmm. you know, three to five years max, and there would be very little cash flow. And then magically this pop of return of capital and dividends would occur years three, four, or five. Well, that wasn't very helpful for us from a tax planning standpoint. And it was really unilaterally beneficial to the sponsor mm-hmm. where they would realize a promote. After year three, four, or five, when we received our money, we had to go back out and reinvest that money. And oftentimes we would wait for a year or two or three before we could do that. Mm-hmm. And so when you really looked at a longer duration of time and that time-weighted return, we weren't getting 25% IRRs like they were claiming. We were getting less than 10%. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at being in the state of California after taxes, it's really a 5%. So we started to really look at this model and say, okay, if we are really going to make a difference both financially and with impact, we have to extend our horizon. First and foremost, we need to be making investments that are non-concessionary with returns, Matt. Mm -hmm. We are not doing this for philanthropy. We have another foundation that does those kinds of things. This is financially driven returns that on the merits of the deal are, you know, it justifies a limited partner type investment. And once that threshold is satisfied, then we go look at intentional impact. And so there's really two metrics that we measure. You're measuring your internal rate of return, which is a look back. And then we're looking at your impact rate of return, which is a projection looking forward. And then at the time of exit, we will look at both the IRRs, both the impact rate of return and the internal rate of return and see how well we did with our underwriting. And we feel that to get non-concessionary returns and to make the very most impact in this space of attainable housing, Mm -hmm. the only way to do it is through ground up construction. Mm -hmm. And are you holding the asset longer so that you get the same return that you would have if you played in the private equity market, but now because after tax and after the hold period, the returns are roughly equivalent? Our families, they aren't doing this for financial gains. They're doing this also for impact. So yes, we can hold longer. Uh When we underwrite these returns on the onset, we try to get a 3x equity multiple, Uh a 25% IRR over a six to seven year period. However, our favorite hold period is forever. Meaning for those that believe in this concept of appreciation and refinance, rent increases, and all the other levers that are available to us in real estate, it makes no sense to sell. You know, if you're building the exact asset that you want to hold forever, there's no reason to sell it. The operational efficiencies just get better with time. 
I think that's true. I mean, and, and high net worth families who have never sold, they do really well in their real estate portfolios. That's right. It's an amazing thing, especially if there's market scarcity, but you're trying to fight market scarcity by putting out 40,000 units out there. So one of the reasons why you know, affordable housing is a crisis today is because the short-term nature of these required investments. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to get your 10, 15 or 20% clips. You really do need to look, you know, at a longer window. And frankly, we think that ground up construction provides a wholesale price. And once stabilized, you can revalue it at a retail pricing. Mm -hmm. And that mark to market valuation is a very real return to us. Okay. So talk about ground up construction, talk about attainable housing, what that marketplace is, talk about where you're going to do it and how you're going to get it done. And it is interesting in all of my prior conversations, not just in the podcast, but as I walk around in the business, everyone said, eh, it doesn't pencil if you're trying to do workforce housing, you have to build luxury housing. That's been the prevailing wisdom, at least through this past cycle. So talk to us about how you're going to do it, where you're going to do it, and what it's going to be. Man, they're exactly right. It doesn't pencil. Remember my original story. There was a permanent loss of capital. It does not pencil. But and that was so, a subsidized deal. So, But you're going to be doing this in non-subsidized. So I want to understand that concept. That's correct. So our strategy is very simple. We are shorting California, and we are going long with all of the cities surrounding California. So that would be, we're very bullish on Seattle, Portland, Reno, Las Vegas, Phoenix, and the next states over will go Bozeman, Boise, Salt Lake City, uh, New Mexico. Of course, Denver's a great market in Colorado Springs, Boulder, and we'll go probably as far east as Texas. And we feel that Austin and Dallas and Fort Worth are great markets. Anything east of the Mississippi, we're probably not going to pursue any time in the near future, but we have four or five markets out there that we think are outperforming others. We're looking for high job growth. We're looking for good in migration. And we're looking for business friendly states where businesses are being created and where there's a lack of supply. And we think that the Southwest area of the United States disproportionately has those underwriting attributes versus some other locations in the United States. I, I can't let that it drop to why short California. I think I know why, but it, it contradicts some of the things you just said. But well, I'm here. My so. family is originally from Southern California, and uh, there's so many great things about California. But from a regulatory perspective and the you know, pending rent controls, there's so many additional barriers to entry there. Now, if we do come to California, and we think that we eventually will, we just want to do it in a really big way with very substantial economies of scale, having our supply chains in place. It'll probably be the very last market that we enter. It's a fantastic market. You know, it's the fifth largest economy of the world. But there definitely is an exodus of people leaving the state of California. Those are the people that we want to serve. It's the firefighters. It's the police officers. It's the teachers. It's, you know, the nurses and it's the data center professionals that are just looking for a better cost of living. So I'm going to keep asking the same question. Make it real for me. How does this hit the ground? How do you do this? Are you building a team and a 
company? Are you partnering with local developers? And how are you becoming the ringing the efficiencies out of the supply chain? I don't think you said that, but you you might have. Yeah. Hey, what's well, we haven't what's figured that it out yet. <laughs> we haven't figured it out yet, but we're well along our way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're far along in this path in our journey. You know, each year we will essentially upgrade our business model and our operating model. First and foremost, we're technologists. And secondly, we're finance professionals. We believe that we need to take ownership of all technology and we need to standardize, normalize, and automate as many processes as possible. Now, we're not trying to be somebody that procures all purchasing from the supply chain and takes everything through property management services. No, we are positioning ourselves as the capital partner of choice to the marketplace. We are bringing the equity, we will originate the debt, and where required, we will provide the guarantee for these construction loans. And in so doing, we just have a few requirements. (laughs) We want you to do it the multi-green way. And that might be not a cultural fit for some. And, you know, because we are the end owner, we care about the details. We care about the operational efficiencies. We are not trying to build the cheapest product. And we are not trying to be merchant builders that exit these construction programs two or three years from now upon stabilization. That's just not our model. Mm-hmm. But those developers that want to do at least a thousand units over a few year period time window, we're your solution. And we want developers to hyper focus and specialize in what they do with a very specific niche and MSA or a specific location. And with that methodology, we are going to create a specific program for that city or municipality. And our only requirement is hey, at a bare minimum, these projects need to be LEED certified or Green Globe certified with some kind of health and wellness program. And I think that's where our expertise really starts to shine as we have owned, developed, managed, and operated data centers globally now for over 30 years. Owning and operating data centers is different than owning operating property management of multifamily, particularly for workforce. It's a really good catch. So data centers help because you know how to put out something without moving human beings. In fact, there's, it's a building of computers. Our opinion is if we can do this in the data center space, which is one of the most complicated assets in the world, uh-huh. better be able to do it in the multifamily space. And here's the catch. Uh-huh. We think that this is also a data play 10 years from now. How so? What's that mean? Well, that's a part of our secret sauce. And I can't talk about it because I don't know what it is yet. But we do think that 10 years from now, uh-huh. our data will be just as valuable as what we're doing with the ground of development and construction of these assets. And there's a concept that we're really pushing and pushing into the marketplace, which is building as a service, which means each one of our stakeholders is going to benefit from the product that we're building, whether it's the investor, developer, or the family that is living in our homes. Each one of those has a very unique need and you have to design the building well and the experience well to benefit all three. And I guess the fourth would be the municipality, but that's really not you know, in our uh, economic model. Although we are seeking 
you know, where possible property tax, uh, mm -hmm. you know, abatements. We're looking for concessions or density bonus type language and provisions with cities. But by and large, our stakeholders are the investor, the developer, and the family that's renting our units. Fair deal. And, and if you get concessions from the local authority, are you then promising to only rent to people below certain area median incomes? Are you promising any kind of internal rent, not rent bumps above a certain amount? In the cities that we're in now, we have not had to make those commitments. I think every city in the United States is having what's called this housing crisis. They need supply. Uh, this is a supply strategy. This is a build, build, build strategy. And if and when we can get the municipalities to work with us in providing additional concessions, hopefully it's a concession that benefits the entire community, not just us as the owner of the property. Mm -hmm. And let's come back to a couple points here. And for our audience, I'm learning as we're going here. Essentially, you're a capital provider, a preferred capital provider to someone who builds new multifamily with a whole lot of opinions. And you're going to be the capital provider that will then kind of build to suit, hold long term. It, Absolutely. So you're, you're like a, this private market approach, this capitalistic approach might be the only way to rebalance the housing crisis as we know it today. Uh -huh. So merchant builder in a given market, you partner with one or two multiple merchant builders in target markets. I'm, that's a question. And they come to work with you, but you'll be a highly opinionated partner, kind of very focused. Again, I said build to suit, not ever typically using the multifamily business, but I think that's what it is, or build to spec that you're then going to operate. Can you make it real with a given market or a given local partner so that I can understand the secret sauce of what this has become, what average cost you're putting it out at, et cetera? To answer your question, Matt, to make it real, mm -hmm. we just closed a transaction last week in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I'll just give you some prod numbers. And while this is confidential information, I don't think that any of our listeners are going to go you know, into Albuquerque and try to compete with us. But we are all in on this project at about $70 million. And this is for two phases and 325 units. And we're estimating that our rents are going to be somewhere between $1.20. On average, I think we're going to be at about $1.20. And um, our average rents are going to be about somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000. But let's tell our listeners what that comes with. You're within literally walking distance of a brand new elementary school, mm -hmm. a brand new middle school, mm -hmm. a brand new high school, mm. a brand new synagogue, a brand new LDS state center, and a Presbyterian hospital that's uh, committed to that location. Also included in that is going to be heavily discounted utilities as we are building our own microgrid. Mm -hmm. And we will be essentially providing smart units and very high-end digital amenities with very simple construction and architectural uh, design methodology. But with that, 
we think that we're going to be doing five or six phases down there. And we will essentially be creating a green and sustainable community that over time, mm-hmm. you know, rents may go up, but we're not performing that. And with this current model, with our current underwriting assumptions, this pencils to our economic returns, which are a 3x equity multiple, a 25% IRR over a six to seven year hold period. Now, this is in an opportunity zone, but we are not electing to be an opportunity zone investment. And it just goes to show you that, you know, when you get involved early enough in the design process, you can incorporate these green features without breaking the bank. And in fact, it's our belief system that our operational efficiencies will be far superior than our peer set and, and, and comp set in that community. Mm. And talk about efficiencies, both on the construction cost side and the operations side, and maybe the time side of development. Are you able to bring some quicker entitlements, quicker construction, more efficient operations? Well, the truth of the matter is no. We relied on a local partner to get through the entitlements and permitting. And we had no dollars at risk during that time period. So some would say, ah, Randy, you're cheating. And I'd say, you know what? We're not cheating. We are pre-committing to this developer as the takeout. Right. It's just that our time zero is a different time zero than the developer. And so with that concept, that's one lever we use to get slightly better returns. But let me just read to you something that I wrote down for this podcast. And that is, there was a recent study that shows that the first cost for construction costs, that is, mm-hmm. is only 27% of your total life cycle cost. And people have heard that study before. What that means, Matt, is that 73% of any facility, including multifamily communities, of all facility costs take place after it is built. Mm -hmm. This includes energy costs. And so we are really underwriting and designing our product with a life cycle cost analysis. And we're really anticipating what's known as the circular economy. And maybe just for the benefit of the listeners, I can speak to that for just one minute. circular economy? Does that work? Yeah. So I think this is the philosophical difference is as we're looking at the hold period as forever. The circular economy is really defined as an economic system that's aimed at eliminating waste and the continual use of resources. So the circular systems employ or reuse, share, repair, refurbish, and remanufacture or recycle to create a closed loop system, minimizing the use of resources and inputs that create waste, pollution, or even carbon emissions. So the circular economy aims to keep our products, our equipment, our infrastructure in use for longer, and the improving of the productivity of these resources. And really that is the multi-green way. So as capital providers in capital projects like this, and in any capital project scenario, a circular economy should create efficiencies in the operations and maintenance. And most critically, in the decommissioning of various phases of a project or other waste. So it drives innovation and technology is a part of this. Mm -hmm. So in order to truly achieve sustainability and a high level of circularity, Mm -hmm. the owner, which is us, multi-green, 
has to espouse integrated project delivery and design build principles. And as you know, in the public funded projects or other subsidized housing programs, the prevailing thought has been that the low bid approach is the best value for public taxpayers. But this method just does not truly benefit, you know, the value engineering that can take place, the constructability and feasibility concerns. And we learned this firsthand in Colorado. So the circularity, you know, of economics approach does not always work unless you have an integrated team. And therefore, it's our philosophy and culture that the highest value for a real estate development project mm-hmm. is achieved only through an integrated team who consider the circular economic benefits of sustainability. So we're excited about what we're doing. And we think that we can empirically document through empirical data our cost savings of all waste. You know, just think about if we can build something that is three or four months quicker than another through panelization or prefabrication or of modular types of uh, aspects in our architectural design. You know, look at all that interest expense we can save. Mm -hmm. But again, there's so many examples I can give you and the listeners, Matt, about what our industry is doing wrong. You know, construction hasn't changed much in the last hundred years. We know this and have heard this, although it's interesting, you know, you're still early because you haven't done this. We know what's wrong. We haven't yet. I want to look back. I'll have you back on the podcast after 10 of these are in the ground and working and operating. And we see the results in terms of not returns, but the return, you know, the results in terms of overall cost and operating costs and the rest of it. You know, remember, Matt, we have done this before in data centers, (laughs) rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And that philosophy is now what we will absolutely require of our development partners going forward. Mm-hmm. So think of us as a lean construction firm and as a capital provider, we have a seat at the table from day one. Yeah. So I think of it a different way. It's, it's interesting. So help me with this one because I think of it, you know, in multifamily development and particularly in the merchant build world, I think of maybe two or three different types of capital partners that is sustained over time. So one type of capital partner was a big building program that Equity Residential did 20 years ago with merchant builders. It was a build to spec and then EQR took them over. And you'll hear a lot about that from Fred Tuami, who's who's on your board, who implemented at least the catcher's mitt side of that thing. And then the other is the Prudentials of the world and the Invesco's of the world who've been preferred capital partners, but of course they flip out of the properties or it's build to core. And so I think you're the third leg of that kind of vision. That's what you're becoming. It's not just a capital source. It's again, the capital source that is billed to your spec that you're then going to operate. And at a different value point than everyone has been doing because the value point they've been doing has been, you know, pretty upper 10% of the apartment costs. Yeah. And Matt, I don't want to give all of our secret sauces away, but we have invested heavily in our digital infrastructure and our technology to pull this off. I think that we are better capitalized than most as a spin out from the family office. And with our shareholders supporting us, we're able to make investments that I think other sponsors, fund managers, or multifamily ownership groups just can't make. Mm -hmm. And that's one of our competitive advantages. So let's come back to this concept that we started the conversation with, which is, and here's, this is compelling to me, 60 of the world's 
wealthiest families, the leading families of the world are putting capital behind this business. You make an announcement at Davos, which is the place they want to hear these announcements of we're going to build 40,000 units in 10 years or whatever the time frame is, and we're going to come jump in and thump on the world. The world's going to shake as we land, and then you're going to define this product type that's hardly been done, meaning workforce new construction, non-subsidized, and you're going to go get them from the standpoint of preferred capital, easy capital to deal with, and opinionated capital because you have all these concepts. Yeah, we're not trying to say that we're the only way or we are the right way. We are a way. (laughs) It's the multi-green way. And for those where it's a cultural fit, you know, we want to bring you into our circle of trust and give you the tools, which includes capital, Mm -hmm. to go do your job. And, And hopefully we are the best tool for the job and the best capital for the job for what those in the multifamily space are are needing and wanting to do. But keep in mind, this is such a dire situation. This is it this is. housing crisis is not just a California issue or a United States or North American issue. This is a global crisis. Over 200,000 people a day are moving into these mega cities. This is going to continue to exacerbate and it's truly a fundamental structural issue of our time. And what we're saying is, hey, let us lead the way or let us you know, be an example and come follow us. There's, there's a need for a hundred other multi-green yeah. properties out there. And we hope that we can collaborate with those other companies that, that need capital. And, and let me challenge the comment you just made. Some, um, I wonder if it's a pre-COVID statistic or a post-COVID, during COVID statistic of these 200 fam- households per day moving into the big cities. I think right now it's 200,000 a day moving out of the big cities, but maybe moving to those cities that you have as your target markets. Yeah, that's a great point. This was a study that was done uh, by the World Economic Forum, specifically by one of our uh, advisory board members, Ibrahim O'Day, who is one of the leading professors at Columbia University. Uh And you're right, that is an outdated study, probably pre-COVID, but I think the long-term trend (laughs) will eventually normalize and revert back to the trend line. I'm anchoring back uh, to get back to New York City and some of these cities we love. But certainly right now, you know, the suburbs are the homeownership location of choice, which by the way, is only putting the multifamily demand, you know, higher. Mm -hmm. And there continues to be the same thesis here. There's a housing crisis. And as soon as COVID is over and this presidential election is over, the headlines will once again be, you know, about housing. And the headlines are housing, even in COVID. There's no question about the housing shortage as the number one issue, not, as you say, not just California, but throughout the country. And I've said this often on the podcast, I've been in the housing business for 40 years. And this is the first time in my history in this, that housing is a front page issue across the board on a consistent basis kind of all the time, last two, three years, and it's going to continue until it gets solved and the numbers are dire. Mm. Not just for low-income people, but also for, gosh, when the firemen, who we think about all the day, all the time, first responders and the workforce folks can't find a place they can afford to live wherever they are, that's just crazy. And if they have to commute an hour and a half to make the numbers work, then you know we're going to have even bigger problems because of global warming associated with that kind of commute time. It doesn't work. And one of 
One of our very first projects, Matt, was here in Henderson, Nevada, and our project is literally across the street from a brand new hospital. Mm -hmm. And one of my very close friends had a baby here a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, and the nurses that assisted him Mm -hmm. were actually, you know, rental nurses from California. Right. There there, There was a nurse shortage. And so they were living at the Sunset Station Casino. And there's literally all of these jobs being created and still either the first responders or the nurses, you know, in in our workforce don't have anywhere to live. And so, you know, how do we measure impact there? Well, you know, geez, within a hundred yards of the city of Henderson hospital, we will be building 336 units that are attainable and hopefully positioned to service that exact demographic. And look, this is one of the issues of our time. And we want to be, you know, raising our hands saying, hey, let us be a participant in the solution. Please do. Randy, on Leading Voices, we always talk about how people got to this place of leadership. And and you're relatively young man. So you're starting at this audacious goal at an early age. But just go back for a few minutes and tell us how you got involved with real estate and and your background. Interesting. I think you went to BYU where you studied Korean. That's correct. So, so help me about that. How come? Sure, Matt. Yeah, just by way of background, my family is originally from Southern California. I was raised in Orem, Utah mm-hmm. in Happy Valley. And now I choose to live in Henderson, Nevada with my wife, Delani, and my two children, Taylani and Edison. But growing up in Utah, I came from a family of seven. Mm -hmm. And my father, he was not an Austrian sea captain. My mother, she was not a nun. But my father was rather a small business owner, (laughs) managing and maintaining commercial office and residential rental properties. And my mother was the household CEO. So in other words, we were not the Von Trapp family singers, right. but rather we were the Norton family builders. And what that meant was as a family of seven, my first job was at the age of four. And being a part of that family business, everybody is participating. And I joke around with my dad that he should be reported for child labor law infringement <laughs> because we were way too young to be participating. And many squeegees and mops later, I remember my brothers hanging from many stories above the ground, you know, hanging from the ladder, throwing tools at each other. And we just laugh about it this day. But I had the opportunity to run teams and crews for some really difficult labor at the age of 16 and 18, pulling all night shifts. And at that young, formidable age, I learned accountability. Mm -hmm. And this was the very most important lesson I learned in my first family office. And as you can see, real estate is just some of my favorite things. (laughs) After my young work period, I, after high school, I went and served an LDS mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh And I learned the language of Korean, which had a lot of Chinese characters. And I fell in love with that culture of learning and diligence Uh and Confucius principles of really integrity is is what it's all about and governing oneself. And upon returning from South Korea, uh, yes, you're right. I did study at Brigham Young University where I doubled majored in Korean and business with a finance emphasis. And while at BYU, I met uh, one of my teachers at the Marriott School of Business. His name was Lee Daniels, 
who was previously the CEO of AT&T Asia and mm-hmm. managing partner of a very large private equity firm there called Newbridge Capital. And he told me I was his favorite student. I don't know why. And he asked if I would be his first analyst. And with that was my introduction to the real estate finance industry. Mm-hmm. And after my experience there with Lee, after a few years, I went back to school and studied at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, where I first really learned about the affordable housing crisis. And I became aware of the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies. Mm-hmm. And that was right before, or it was right during the global financial crisis. So Nick Retzinas was running it? Yes. Uh-huh. And while I was there at Harvard, I also read Alice Schroeder's book on Warren Buffett called The Snowball. And the post-global financial crisis, I read the book you know, that Greg Zuckerberg wrote on the greatest trade ever, mm-hmm. which was a fascinating story about the few investors that made billions from shorting the market through the VIX and uh, credit default swap and other derivatives like the uh, CDOs, um, which are the credit default obligations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) crazy structures. And I just remember at that time being at Harvard, sitting at Harvard in Harvard yard, remembering and thinking that, you know what, there's a theme here that keeps repeating. And that is the experts keep getting it wrong. And I wanted to just not get it wrong. And, you know, at a very young age, I just wanted to make a difference in life and not lose money. Mm -hmm. And I felt that if I spent enough time in this crazy industry that we call real estate, that I might just figure it out. And what I love about real estate, Matt, is it's the most multidisciplinary, multifaceted, sure you know, industry and asset class. And, um, you know, in stocks, you get penalized for insider trading. You can't get any inside information, but in real estate, mm-hmm. you can, you know, you're taught and trained to go find out what nobody else knows, you know, go meet with the cities, go meet, with the people and and go figure out the information arbitrage. And and that's really why I've stayed in this real estate industry for as long as I can, because I finally feel like, you know, all of my mistakes are starting to help me better execute and better underwrite very large, complicated investments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It takes a long career to gain wisdom. You can't gain wisdom not having made mistakes, getting back to the conversation about losing your pursuit cost. And in the stock market, people lose their stake every day, right? Oh, made a bad bet, made a bad bet. In real estate, you're kind of expected that all bets are pretty good, or at least on you know new construction stuff. But you know, one thing that I've learned about being in this industry, Matt, is especially being in Vegas, mm-hmm. that there's no room for playing poker here. No, and it's really the exact opposite. We play chess, and we have to get all of the information and all the pieces on the board so that you can manage expectations and really understand what the next best move is. And once you have an integrated team and third-party legal team and, you know, professionals around you that believe in that theory, right? that's half the battle. For years, we've done every property type, every asset class, equity investments, debt investments. And when you really look at the time-witted return, you know, and normalize that on a 10-year period of time, (laughs) you really know and learn that multifamily is a superior asset. And I think that's the growing up phase where we are now and why we exclusively want to focus on that and specialize in that. And one of the professors I had, you know, he was a 
economic Nobel laureate. I went up to him after class. It was one of the hardest classes mm-hmm. I ever had. And I said, okay, we just studied U.S. economic history. What is the one thing you want me to learn from economics? And he said, Randy, remember to specialize, specialize, specialize. And I think I would have to say that when you get into the real estate industry, you have to know a lot about many different things. But real estate, generally speaking, is about specialization. And once you can really understand the many difficult you know, aspects of real estate and avoid you know, losses of capital, it gets fun. Mm-hmm. And we should come back to specialization as we, when we wrap up the conversation. But you wrote a book called Applied Value Investing in Real Estate. And so it's interesting if you're investing across asset classes, you don't fall in love with an asset class. You're, you're making bets, you're making investments. But if you specialize, 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 then you're going deep in an asset class and you're committing to it. So talk a little bit about your book and then talk about if you're a value investor looking across asset classes, but then you specialize, it's a different kind of game. Sure. So value investing is my second religion. It is the only way to invest. And essentially, you are looking for and structuring investments that have a very clear margin of safety. And, you know, when you're looking at the stock market, you don't have to specialize in 5,000 different stocks. You need to specialize in a few industries or 100 stocks and watch those stocks carefully. And when value presents itself, you pounce. Well, the same thing is true with real estate. You're looking at all of these property types. You're looking at all these asset classes. Some are very cyclical in nature, right? Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes it's about location, location, location. In our perspective, it's about demographics, 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 because you can certainly have, you know, the right piece of property at the right location and build the wrong asset on top of it. Mm -hmm. So this Latisse work of many variables that you bring together really is what I call the application of value investing in real estate. And right now I am finishing the book and uh, look to publish it next year, you know, with some of the families that, you know, we are working with. Um, It's going to be great to get their perspective on how value investing, you know, can apply to real estate as well. So we're talking a few weeks before the presidential election, and I don't want to get in a political argument or a political agreement fest. It's one way or the other these days. But it's interesting. It's a backdrop on the point that you made before about housing being one of the issues of our time and how difficult it is to address the issues of our time in such a contentious political environment. Everyone's hope is we gain, get back to some normalization in politics so that business can operate the way it should and the free market can know what it's going to be able to do. Any comments on how the world settles down a little bit and then how we go about dealing with the kinds of problems that you're trying to address in your business? Well, I'm a registered libertarian, so I don't have <laughs> a dog in the fight. Uh-huh. I am a fiscal conservative and I am a, a social liberal. But I will say that irrespective of who wins the presidential election, there is going to continue to be a hyper demand for housing. And I, I want to be a part of that solution. I want to be a part of that conversation. Matt, I think this next decade is the decade to solve the 4 million plus you know, unit shortage or housing shortage in our country. One estimate has it at 4.6 million units short. Mm -hmm. 
And I personally believe that not only do we need to build them faster, but we need to build them in a more sustainable way. And that really requires value-added procurement and target value delivery, which goes back to the applied value investing mm -hmm. concept and creating a platform to do it. Look, our country is divided today. I, I think that this all goes back into the home. If we can provide a safe place for families to thrive and for families to be a complete unit with all of the digital amenities or other amenities that society has to offer, we're going to see less tension in the news and, and in the headlines. And I, for one, want to be a part of that impact story. And we're going to try to figure out every possible way to measure that, both qualitatively and quantitatively, and allow institutional investors to benefit from this, I think, noble cause. I totally agree. It's interesting, though, because we've talked throughout this conversation about the issue for our time is housing. The concurrent issue for our time is the environment. And if we don't do housing in a way that helps the environment, at the same time, it will be a zero-sum game. And you're trying to address both, which really, really matters. We can't do it without. Not only are we trying to address it, but we really believe that our assets will be worth more. Yeah. They will operate more efficiently. And there's many case studies that prove that. It's just that many owners or many end owners are not involved early enough in the design process to have a say in the outcome. That's right. And that's really the niche that we want to fulfill. Yeah. And if you're doing a trade or on a merchant build, you know, do you price that in? How do you price that in? How much of the truth is out there about what the real long-term sustainability impacts of a property are. And when you're going to trade something, that's a different game versus upfront going into it the way you're planning it. So I, right. I applaud that. So the last question on leading voices is always the same. What's your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business? Hmm, that is a really good question. Can I maybe answer it with a couple? Absolutely. Responses? Of course. Number one, you know, there's this concept of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Hmm. And I think that with anybody entering this industry today, they need to become more familiar and an advocate for yimbyism. Yes, in my backyard, there are so many benefits from having a mixed uh, demographic in any given municipality that the economics and social benefits certainly outweigh anything that nimbyism tries to defend and protect. It's just ridiculous. And it's like the civil rights movement for real estate. It's happening now in 2020. Be a part of it. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. And I know you're in San Francisco, which is the epicenter of all of this. Oh my goodness. Um, I would then say become both literate and numerate. When I was talking with Carol Loomis a couple of years ago, she said that this was Warren Buffett's greatest trait, that he, he just understood stocks from both a qualitative and quantitative perspective and could communicate that margin of safety in such a way that um, you know, his performance proved himself. And I would ask any real estate analyst, you, know, you really need to become literate and numerate with this asset class. Next thing I would say is just show up. <laughs> you know, these, um, a, a lot of people don't remember Vince Lombardi and his saying that you, know, you always need to be uh, early by 15 minutes and, and that's Lombardi time, but also Bill Gates Sr., before he passed away, he wrote his book called Showing Up for Life. Mm -hmm. And in it, he mentioned that 80% of his success was showing up. And if you know he would just work long enough together, long enough, 
and hard enough, anything was possible. And I think he said something like, you know, life sends us these opportunities and challenges and our future is really shaped by how we respond to them. So if we just keep showing up, even when we fell or lose capital, like I did, mm-hmm. you know, doors will open. I think one of the surest signs of intelligence is to have an open mind, meaning it is okay to say that I don't know something, you know, the hubris that's in this industry, just say you don't know, mm-hmm. but I'll go find the answer. And I think when you start doing that, you realize the power of integrity and you're trading that currency of integrity. And I would, I would just say this, the difference between integrity and honesty is action. I can look to you, Matt, and say, hey, Matt, I'm going to be on time for this podcast and I'll see you at 3 p.m. Well, I could also show up at 310 and I, I meant it, but integrity is actually doing what you say you're going to do. Mm. And I think the people that differentiate themselves in this industry, the top 1%, they say what they're going to do and they do it and keep your commitments. So with that, I want to share just a quote that I wrote down for this podcast. And it's by Margaret Mead, who was the great anthropologist that said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And it's our collective responsibility to improve the state of the world by building better housing. That's wonderful. And we can... It's interesting. It's one of the precepts of our podcast, folks, and they've all heard this from me because I keep doing it. But real estate can change the world. We can make the world a worse place. We can make the world a better place. It's not much more expensive to make it a better place. And the social impact long term. It's unbelievable, especially environmental, but all across the board. That's what we're able to do in the real estate business. Well, Matt, I want you to invite me back periodically every year or two (laughs) and hold my feet to the fire and hold me accountable to what we're trying to do here. We're trying to build 40,000 units in 10 years, and I think we're going to do it. You're going to be back. I am going to hold you accountable. Our listeners are going to hold you accountable. They're going to start emailing me and saying, okay, like, where's Randy? We want to hear how he's doing. So, Well, just a quick follow-up. You can follow us at multi.green. That's right. It's not a .com. It's www.multi.green. You can follow us on social media. Our handle is hashtag thinkmultigreen. And for any of you that are looking for or needing capital, either equity or debt, please email us at info at multi.green. Beautiful. Hey, Randy, thank you very much. This was a great conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And good luck with this business. We all care. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at See you next time.